that's an amazing proof point of evidence in my life and something I can talk very clearly within 30-minute meeting with an alcoholic about what God's done for me that I couldn't do for myself. And I think now I feel extremely compelled to, one, work with other alcoholics because I know that that's what I have to do, right? To keep the gift. Two, my prayer life is fairly regimented. I, I do say a third step prayer every morning when I get up. It's the very first thing I do after I make the bed because I want to get into action early and then I want to get into prayer. Well, hello, friends of Bill W. and other friends. You have landed on Sober Speak. My name is John M. I am an alcoholic, and we are glad you're all here, especially newcomers. Newcomers, that is, both to recovery as a whole and newcomers to this podcast. Sober Speak is a podcast about recovery centered around the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous. My job here on Sober Speak is simple. My job is to provide a platform to the amazing stories of recovery all around us. Consider Sober Speak, if you will, your meeting between meetings. Please remember, we do not speak for AA or any 12-step community. We represent only ourselves. We are here to share our experience, strength, and hope with those who wish to come along for the ride Take what you want and leave the rest at the curb for the trash man to pick up. Ponce de Leon. (laughs) You know, I don't know what to tell you. I just hear weird words in my head every once in a while, and that's one of them. And I start the podcast with it. It makes no sense at all. That was the voice of Mr. Curry N that you heard at the beginning of this here episode, episode number 290 of Sober Speak, and we are going to hear so much more from Curry in just a moment, but first things first, this here episode is brought to you by Melissa and Kim and Marcos and Laura. What, you may ask, did Melissa and Kim and Marcos and Laura do? Well, they went to our website, www.soberspeak.com. They clicked on the little yellow donate tab and they made, guess what, a contribution. So thank you so much, Melissa and Kim and Marcos and Laura. This here episode is coming right out to Ewans. Alright, so we are going to get right into Curry's episode today. This is Curry, and we are calling this one, God Did For Me What I Couldn't Do For Myself. Curry is from McKinney, Texas, uh, and he attends the Frisco Group here in Texas. Whoa, I happen to attend that meeting as well. And Curry has been sober a bit over four years. Actually, I think it's going to be closer to uh, four and a half years now, um, if I'm not mistaken. But nonetheless, we discuss the death of Curry's father, the day Curry turned one year sober, his divorce uh, after a few years sober and what lessons he learned regarding steps six and seven during that time, uh, how Richard Rohr, who is a 
Franciscan priest and author played a critical role or pivotal role in Curry's discovery of Alcoholics Anonymous. We talk about Carl Jung, we talk about Roland Hazard, and much, much more with Curry. I know you're going to enjoy this one. Everybody, we will have plenty of listener feedback at the end of this episode. Enjoy Curry. Okay, everybody, so today... We are sitting here with a good friend of mine. His name, well, I'm going to let him introduce himself and give your sobriety date, if you will, there, sir. Sure thing. My name is Curry, and I'm an alcoholic, and I've been sober since January the 1st, 2019. January 1st, 2019, and we're at the beginning of 23 years, so that, what, four years? That's right. Just celebrated four years. My goodness. Good to be with you, Juan M. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> one M. Yes, so uh, Curry is the one who in meetings and when he sees me out in public, wherever I am, calls me Juan uh, because he listens to the podcast and he knows that I have really bad English or Spanish. And where did you grow up again, sir? I'm from the border, from El Paso, Texas. So you so you know real Spanish. Si, right? hablo un poco. Ah. And your nope. accent is horrible. <laughs> <laughs> it's all right, man. I'm willing to help anytime, anytime. Like yeah. So, but unfortunately, I'm usually in the middle of recording when I realize how bad it's going, and I can't call you. But I could, I could bring you over during the week and get lessons or something. Yeah, like we'll that. work on it. We'll work on it. We'll see how this goes, man. You may never want to see me again. I don't know. <laughs> All right, so let's talk about a little bit about how we're here right now. So uh, all of us went to a meeting a little bit earlier today, and a did. an Alcoholics Anonymous meeting. Yep, the Frisco Fourth. We dimension. were rocketed right into that Fourth that, Dimension, huh? That's right. Mm-hmm. In fact, the chairperson for that meeting is also here. We we rarely have guests within. Studio AA. He's my emotional support animal. Yeah. <laughs> we rarely have the guests within the Studio AA watching the guests being recorded, but we happen to have that right now. So Chance, I'm going to ask you, just get a little closer to that mic there. Just introduce Come yourself, in, let people know where you're from. Hi, my name is Chance and I'm a grateful alcoholic. By the grace of God, I've been sober since 10, 10, 21, and I'm from McKinney, Texas. All right, Chance. We are glad you're here. So Chance actually chaired the meeting today mm-hmm. at the Frisco Fourth Dimension Group, he and he came job. up with a, a great topic. It was kind of like a uh, talking about the bedevilments and then the promises, and we had a lot of good discussion about that. And then you guys went out to lunch afterwards. Mm-hmm. At a local eatery here, and you uh, had let me know that you were going over there, and you were kind enough to invite me over there. So I went by. We were just having a conversation. Chance was talking about himself. I was talking about myself. Mm Carrie was talking about his, and we were just having a kind of a- We all talk about ourselves a lot. Yeah. (laughs) In fact, I was thinking, man, if people could hear this conversation around Mm -hmm. us, it's not your typical how's the weather by any means. And um, I had had a cancellation today with uh, recording, and uh, mm-hmm. Curry, as you know, I looked over at you and I said, hey, Curry, can you come over to my house, Studio AA for a while, mm-hmm. and let's do some recording. Yeah. If it hadn't been for the nature of the conversation that Chance and I had just been having before that around saying yes to God, <laughs> <laughs> that's the only damn way I'm sitting here, I promise you, because... <laughs> 
uh, anyway, it's a little well, more wracking. And let me set it up a little bit more, even further, because um, I told you this, and uh, I told you this at lunch, and that is, I have had a front row seat mm-hmm. to your sobriety over four years. And when I say a front row seat, what I mean is I saw you come in, mm-hmm. uh, and I'll have you explain this in a little bit. I'm just going to pl- explain it from sure. my perspective. And I watch you go through some some really difficult situations. And I, when I'm watching you go through those difficult situations, I noticed that you shared completely different on the front end of that. And then you stuck real close to the program. And I watch you go through that and practice all these, these principles and all your affairs. And you came out different on the other side. And I mean that in a very positive mm-hmm. way. So do you feel the same way about that? I do. I do. As a matter of fact, when I, when I see you and I, sometimes we think about people we met early on, I was remembering today our meeting over at the grocery store. We met in the coffee shop yeah. and I just, I didn't recognize what sort of a fog that I, that I was still, you know, contending with coming out of years of alcoholism, you know? Yeah even though I felt like I was relatively fairly coherent and all of that, I, there's things that I said and did that I'm just like, man, you know, and I, I, I love the forgiving nature of the people that I found in AA who are willing to, they, they love and accept you regardless of how you come in. And usually it's because we've been there before, mm-hmm. you know, so. Mm-hmm. I want to talk, I know a little bit of your history, not all of it, like I said, uh, um, but I, I want to ask you about the, you read a book before you got, or, or you listened to it on audio. You're talking about the father, Richard Rohr. Correct. And that was, that was one of your launching pads into Alcoholics Anonymous. So yeah. talk a little bit about how you got here and, and how that all came about. Sure thing. It's funny. It was a topic at a men's meeting I was at this morning on step 11. And step 11 says, sought through prayer and meditation to improve our conscious contact with God as we understand him, right? Richard Rohr wrote about meditation all throughout that book, but before that, there was a different guy who had... Um, and what was the name of the book? Do you remember? If people wanted- Breathing Underwater. Breathing Underwater. Breathing Underwater. And, it, and it's by Richard Spirituality Rohr? in the 12 Steps. Okay. Yeah, and it explains, it's gospel-based, obviously, he's a Catholic, he's a friar, a Franciscan monk. He noticed these AA members at his parish out in Albuquerque, New Mexico, They'd be out there smoking cigarettes out back, and he went out and introduced himself to them, and he started to learn about them and their transformation. <laughs> and he basically said, some of the best spiritual transformation and healing in, in my church is taking place down in the basement. Mm. And so he started to really investigate Bill Wilson and what occurred with this program and this national movement, this global movement, really, of healing. And um, thanks to that book, I didn't know prior to that, that Alcoholics Anonymous was a spiritual program at all. Wow. I had no idea. So you're reading that, mm-hmm. and I, I, what are the other events that you want to bring up in terms of what rocketed you, rocketed yeah. you into to Alcoholics <laughs> Anonymous? Well, one of, the first, the, one of the very first things that happened to me is I was at a meeting, a sales meeting. I was a, a VP with this company. I'd been doing it for 10 years, and I had a whole lot of pressure and responsibility, and one of the guys that reported to me was a guy who'd played starting left tackle in NCAA Division One football, and he was a big man. Um, and he um, was just 
always positive. He had this great energy, you know, and, and we were at a bar in New Orleans together and I was sitting there having a cocktail complaining about something with respect to the new direction we were headed and how, why this wouldn't work and this and that. And, you know, my dog died and blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. And he's just like, man, do you even hear yourself? And it was one of those like arrows of light that pierced the darkness that like hit me in the, in the heart. And he's like, I, I truly don't think you understand how negative you are. And he's like, would you be open to some new ideas? And so he's like, have you ever seen me be negative? And I thought about it and I'm like, God, not in three years. I've never seen him be negative. And he was a guy who had some serious reasons to be concerned, health related and other matters that I won't get into too much, but he was always positive. And so he turned me on to a book called The Power of Now by Eckhart Tolle. I'm yeah. sure you're familiar with that. And I remember reading that and it, it what they what they taught us, you know, in AA, you hear guys say, my, my mind is like a bad neighborhood. You don't want to go in there alone at night, whatever. Mm -hmm. My mind was like a, a really busy intersection with a no traffic cop there to control <laughs> it. Like thoughts are just coming in left and right and center and, you know, from all sorts of stuff. And when I read that book, I I recognized immediately, one, I'm never here. I'm always out there or back there. I'm pointing to the future, you know, and thinking about the next shoe that's going to drop or being worried to death about this, that, and the other, usually catastrophizing, our friend David G likes to say. Mm -hmm. And then I may be dwelling in the past in some regret or some trauma that I can't get past, right? And, and that book showed me how through the body I can discover a way to be present right now. And, and, a, and a couple of things, not just through the body, but that's one way to get there is like... So you're drinking while you're reading this book. Yeah, you? yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'd be drinking and then going upstairs and listening to this on Audible, you know, and just thinking, oh, and really you talk about messing yourself up, you know, um, that book and later on the breathing underwater. But what this thing taught me was like, consider the fact that, listen, pay attention at your heart beating for a minute. And it's like recognizing your pulse and your breathing. And if you pause for a moment and just listen to that, you have a moment of silence, you know? And you don't have to have active thoughts going through your mind, but it, it also occurs to you one truth is like, I'm not in control. I have absolutely nothing to do with the fact that my heart's beating on a rhythm and that my lungs breathe and in, inhale air and exhale. And I don't have to think about that. So there's mm -hmm. something else driving the ship here. The second thing is, I can pay attention to my thoughts and I can watch my thoughts go by, you know, you ever like think a thought and then you go, who thought that, you know, where did that come from? Well, the, the book pointed out like, how is it possible to observe a thought? That means that you are not your thoughts. You are not your mind. And there's a separate entity that exists there. And what they're talking about is that that entity is just your being, and I can just be, and it taught me how to be still and be able to close out all this racing thought stuff that was always going on in my mind that was really wrecking my life, you know? And, and that, that verse that said, be still and know that I am God, that just came to mind, and it was like, man, I can just be quiet for like, and it literally was like 30 seconds, and then pretty soon, all sorts of other things started to happen and unwind, and over the course of the next couple of years, I had different things come into my life, including uh, Father Rohr's book. That's interesting. So I'm picturing this. You're getting loaded reading this really deep stuff. <laughs> 
sounds a little more ridiculous when you say it like that. <laughs> but you're you're comprehending it and you know that it's right. I'm assuming it's hard to practice when you're loaded. No, I mean I wouldn't do that while I um I should say I had a habit of, you know, daily I would start drinking after work, you know, and and drink X number of beers, whatever it was. And then the next morning I would yeah, I would listen to that book at night and in the morning I would try to practice that. You know, I'd go out in the backyard and and sit there and try to practice a moment of just blocking out thought, breathe and pause, you know, and you were a, you were a church member as well, am I right mm-hmm. about that? Do you mm-hmm. are you still as involved with the church? Talk to me about your uh, metamorphosis through through that 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 period of getting sober and, you know, your relationship with the church. Sure. I um I'll try to summarize. I had a spiritual experience very profoundly when I was a teenager uh, at a church camp in New Mexico. Uh, grew up as a United Methodist and went to the youth group there. And we had a, a, a pastor talk to us at a mountaintop experience, you know, and, and we felt the presence of the Holy Spirit, a couple of us. And, and I do, I still go back to that as my first spiritual experience as a young man. Yeah. Then within a few years, you know, I started drinking and, um, as a teenager, and I always kind of had that that split between. The church was always a part of my life for many years, and then when I got into, you know, we kind of drifted in and out, but when I got into college, I, I drifted like a lot of people do, and when I got married, obviously, was married in the church, and we, we did christen our two daughters at a local Methodist church, so that was kind of the tradition both of us returned to, but we weren't super active until about... 2015, 2014 or so is when I really went back and started to seek him again. And that was where we did. We returned to a local church that I was involved in for many years. And, you know, now I, um, I participate in a few different ways in my faith. Um, I continue to serve here in the local community yeah. through that church. Um, but I also attend worship at other churches as well. So. Yeah. So, so do you have a different sort? I don't know. Is it is it different before sobriety and after sobriety? And if so, how are you able to highlight any of those? Well, yeah, absolutely. It's um, you know, Doctor Bob's Bible is said to be open to the James verse that says, "Faith without works is dead." What's different for me now is um, Alcoholics Anonymous was really the the way that showed me how to do the work to get to the point where I could let go of alcohol. You know, I didn't think for years and years, I thought I considered myself a man of faith coming into this program. I did Uh, in the 12 and 12, it talks about one type of alcoholic who comes in full of faith and reeking of booze. And and I relate to that man, you know, the person who strives for these virtues that, that are, you know, all throughout scripture, and throughout, you know, the preaching and everything, but for whatever reason, I couldn't let go of this thing, mm-hmm. you know? I just, I couldn't conquer the obsession. And now, you know, now I know, because of Alcoholics Anonymous and the, the work that they showed me how to do, that you guys taught me, that obsession was lifted fairly early on in my experience, and just that alone, if that's all I got out of it, this would be a great deal. And the fact that that's gone now, um, it's... Sh- that's an amazing proof point of evidence in my life and something I can talk very clearly within, you know, a 30 minute meeting with an alcoholic about what God's done for me that I couldn't do for myself. And I think now I feel extremely compelled to, um, 
one, work with other alcoholics, because I know that that's what I have to do, right? To keep the gift. Um, two, my prayer life is fairly regimented. I um, I do say a third step prayer every morning when I get up. It's the very first thing I do after I make the bed, because I want to get into action early, and then I want to get into prayer. And I usually am part of a 6.30 a.m. meeting called On Awakening, so I have a regimen then. And then at night when I go to bed, it's the last thing I do is I hit my knees. I text my girls and tell them I love them and whether they're at my house or not. And then I do my prayers and I go to bed and read. Okay, so uh, there's a couple things I want to get into there. First, though, I, I want to talk about your entree into Alcoholics Anonymous, right? As, you, as we've talked about, it was on January 1st. Mm-hmm. How did you get there? How did you find the meeting? What were the circumstances like? So like I mentioned about that Power of Now book, that that uh, learning how to pray and meditate and that sort of thing sort of coincided with me quitting that job that I'd been in as a VP. And um, I came to this realization that God didn't want me doing that anymore because my, my um, professional life had become all consuming and it was my identity. So I did resign from that in, in July of 2016 and um, took several months off. We had, uh, my dad was diagnosed with cancer during that period. I wound up wasn't um, it like the day after you resigned? Yeah, I resigned on a Friday, and him and mom came to the house on Saturday, said, we need to talk. And it was like, oh my God, this whole thing has not been about me, it's about them. And I think, you know, I will thank my old boss. Uh, we worked out an exit plan, and I had several months where I was not going to be working, and I could just focus on going through this very complicated treatment that he was going to be undergoing. And uh, we did that for several months. And then this new job that I hired, I'm very roundabout way to say, the next place I went to work, I wound up finding, I wound up working with a bunch of people. And one of them happened to be a member of our group. You know, he would drop these like Bill Wilson nuggets of wisdom on me. You know, we'd be sitting there and I'd be worried about something and he could tell I was wired up on something. And he, you know, I mean, meaning um, I'd I'd be getting anxious or Something hit my ego, and he'd go, you know, man, ego stands for edging God out, man. And I'm like, what is this guy, you know? <laughs> it's so, he starts teaching. Like you know, a guru or yeah, something? Yeah, I thought he was like having Yoda in my office. He's there, just spiritual <laughs> leader there for the, and, and he would drop this stuff. And, you know, it wasn't until a few years later I realized where he's getting this stuff, like we all do. We rip it off and uh, out of our material, you know? He's the one that introduced me to to Richard Rohr, and I found that Breathing Underwater book just by happenstance. I don't call it happenstance, divine intervention, in my Mm -hmm. opinion. And that's the thing that, that's where I discovered it was a spiritual program. So I listened to that thing on Audible for about a year before I came to AA. Does that mean you were listening slowly, or you went over and over? Over and over and (laughs) over. I'd be, you know, go go to the house, you know, and uh, at the end of the night, I had probably a few beers in me, whatever. And I'd go lay on the couch or upstairs because I was snoring. And um, I'd listen to this amazing spiritual material and just think, God, I wish I could live like that. You know, I wish I could let it go. All right. So how did you get into AA? How did you find the rooms? We had kind of a pronounced event. I got a call one uh, New Year's Eve. When you say we had a pronounced event, are you talking about your business? My family. Oh, your family. I'm yeah, sorry. I got a call on a New Year's Eve um, that my sister had, she was 
she was uh, in an argument and, and taken off into the face of a blizzard. And mom was like, hey, you need to talk to your sister. I don't know what's going on. And I've talked her into turning around, going back home. But and she's in another state, right? She's in another state. And she's also in the program. Uh, we have the same sobriety date. And I'm so thankful to her, especially in my early sobriety. I don't know if I would have done it without that accountability. But Okay, so wait, you're, you're calling so her. So she calls me up. And she's just asking me, how are you, how are you doing life? You know, I, how do you get this? Cause to her, I had, I had it all figured out. You know, she thought I was like, had my shit together or whatever. And excuse me. And so we started talking about all this stuff. And eventually I just said, you know, I really think that both of us should consider going into the rooms of AA. And if you'll go, if you'll go to a meeting in your state tomorrow, I'll go to one here in McKinney. And we'll call each other afterward. And that's kind of how we got into the room. So kind of like the opposite of a suicide pack. <laughs> it was a life pack. Yeah. 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 yeah no. Save our life pack. Yeah. Yeah. Seriously. It was. Um, so she went to one room, you're going to another and y'all have both stayed sober since that time. Absolutely. Wow. 100%. And was that your first time in Alcoholics Anonymous? First time. Wow. That's yeah. great. Okay, so so you get into the rooms. So I want to talk a little bit about when I said I've had a front row seat to watching you over the last couple of years, what I mean by that. You had mentioned earlier about uh, your daughters and, you know, if they're with you or not with you. When mm-hmm. you came into the room, you were married. Yep. Um, and I watched you go through that divorce with mm-hmm. a great deal of grace. So I want you to talk about that process because I know there are other people in the room who have been through it or are going to go through it. Sure. Why don't you talk about that divorce process? You know, I did come in thinking that everything was pretty hunky-dory, you know. Uh, I had not lost a lot of the things that a lot of people in the rooms talk about losing. The the house, the car, the driver's license, the family, the broken kids, all of that stuff. I didn't really think I had anything that severe going on. But, you know, as time progressed and, um, you know, I'm three years sober at this point when we started to see some challenges and start to try to work through them. And as we started to work through them more and more sort of became revealed to me about, you know, just about how much my past history of my behavior, meaning drinking had impacted us. And it was, um, you know, I, I don't want to get too personal about it, but I will I will just say that for a number of years, I was not as engaged as I could have been. And, you know, they talk about in, in the big book, we had become incapable of distinguishing the false from the truth. This talk about the delusion that we are like others has to be smashed. I had a delusion, delusional belief that because I never yelled at anybody and I never threw anything at anyone and we didn't really fight or anything like that that I wasn't really harming anyone, but that's, that's a falsehood. It's, it's an absence of presence and an absence of love and care and the things that you should provide in a relationship that were, you know, uh, we're not there for lack of a better thing. So, you know, at a certain point we get to realize that some of those things that uh, any married couple ought to have for one another have sort of withered on the vine over time. But it was very, very painful to come to the realization that, cause I, I didn't really want that, you know, and was really trying to hang on. You know, I remember coming and talking with 
a friend of mine in the program who, you know, I was just like, I called him and everything was on fire and I, I knew she was getting ready to, to move on and this and that. And he just said, Hey man, how's those character defects coming? How's your six and seven looking? And I was like, what are you talking about? You know? And like a lot of us, we have these crises we can't see past. And I'm just like, no, 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 I'm not talking about step work. I'm talking about real things that are going on that I need to resolve. And he said, absolutely. Let's take a look at your six and seven and and go back over that. You know, this man, I had come to know him earlier, you know, as we approached about a year of sobriety, um, I mentioned that my dad had the cancer diagnosis a couple of years before I came in. He wound up dying the day after we got a, a year, our one year coin, my sister and I did. And, um, you know, this man came into my life, uh, around that time. And there were a lot of things about his background that were similar to what my dad had. They were both in the military, both involved in aviation, both loved military and aviation. Uh, he and I both kind of had an affinity for guns. I'm not a gun nut, but I do appreciate, you know, firearms and kind of enjoy that as a hobby or whatever. And this man came along during the time that we were going through that whole long march through cancer. And as dad got sicker and sicker, he and I had become closer and closer friends. Just, just my friend in AA, you know, seen him in, in men's groups, seen him in our group. You've interviewed him before. And it was Wayne H, uh, you know, that we, would talk about this stuff. And he really helped me out a lot. In fact, after dad died and after I picked up my one-year coin, he gave me his Marine coin from his squadron. That's a pretty big deal. He gave me, and he said, you know, they gave us these when we accomplished something significant. And you've accomplished something significant walking through this in sobriety, you and your sister together. That left this indelible imprint on me. And so as I got to know more about his story, he he became somebody that I trusted who uh, was extremely well-armed with the facts about himself and about our literature. You know, if you fast forward a couple years later, as we're going through this thing that I was like absolutely terrified of and imagining, man, this is going to like wreck our lives. We're going to have to, uh, I can't imagine the impact on the kids. You know, I was thinking about I never wanted to have children and raised in a divorced household. I, I was not. And so to me, that just seemed like a really, really hard thing. And you have two daughters, right? Two daughters that are teenagers and the division of assets and all the complications and fear about what, you know, is this going to turn into some legal thing or whatever? Like, I mean, as you can imagine, you can, you can just let your mind run and he kept bringing it back to let's talk about our character defects. And because we were going through counseling and I would share with him, you know, hey, we're hitting some pretty tough subjects. What happened is we we pulled up this. Um, Just curious real quick before yes, you go on. Um, when you said you were going through counseling, was that to try to save the marriage or was it just to discover Depends on who you ask. <laughs> no, 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 no. I think I was desperately trying to hang on to something that, you know, that now I know, and I don't advocate for divorce, but I know now with the d- dynamic that we have, spoiler alert, I mean, everything has turned out incredibly well for her, for my daughters, for me. I think all of us are in a better place of healing. I I love my ex-wife. Um, you know, we we have a very good relationship uh, we co-parent, I think, very well. We're good friends. We see each other all the time. 
So it doesn't have to be as bad as a lot of people make it out Scorched to be. Scorched earth. Yeah, it ain't war. You know, it's it's just the um, the reality is, I mean, the odds that you're 20 years old, especially I was drinking back then, right? I started drinking when I was a teenager. And the odds of picking somebody that as you to evolve throughout your life that you're going to be as compatible after you've raised two kids and in your mid to late forties as you were in your twenties. Um, that's pretty difficult stuff to do, you know? And, um, I think we'd just grown apart. I'll just kind of leave it on, on that. Um, so what were you going to talk about in your book? Yeah, absolutely. Um, what I would say is, you know, we started talking about, the character defects piece of it, if you look in the big book... And when you it, say we, you're talking about you and Wayne, right? Yeah, yeah, that's right. And if you look in the big book, and my Wayne, he's not my sponsor. He's he's someone that I've done probably more... I've done a ton of step work with him. But, you know, my sponsor and I, when we did it, and he's a great man too. Um, and, you know, when we did it, he was faithful to the way the book presents it, which after you do your, your fifth step inventories, you know, six is like, okay, find a quiet place... Uh, take this book down off the shelf, figure out, have you have you tried to make mortar without sand and all of that stuff and review your list thoroughly. And if you left anything out, you know, and then find a quiet place to pray. And we ask God to remove these defects and all of that stuff. Right. And that's kind of how we did it. Uh, I went through fairly quickly this defect to character thing. But this time he said, we need to take a look at this and see what the 12 and 12 has to say, because the 12 and 12 was written over a decade after Bill Wilson got sober, I think 15 years after somebody will fry me for that, but whatever, you know, it's, it's got a different perspective is the point that I've, I, I've have to first be able to see what my defects are and I can't ask God to remove them unless I know that I have them. And so, you know, he kind of asked me, what are your defects of character? And I couldn't really answer that clearly. So I was glad that I'd held on to my uh, inventory so I could go back and kind of review the things that cropped up over and over and over again. And one thing that came up for me repeatedly was impatience. It's a huge problem for me, impatience and short-temperedness. So we, we went through and took a look at that. And then he talked about making a list of these defects. Like we have our, it's easy to know if dishonesty is a defect, right? Like if I tell you a bold-faced lie, I know in my knower that I'm lying to you. Mm. But there's there are lesser forms of these defects, and it talks about that on um, later on in step six in the 12 and 12. And it says like um, on page 68, it talks about we submitted a list of our defects and their milder forms. And in that case, it's like, okay, I know if I'm being dishonest, if I'm just rationalizing or minimizing my role in something or just, you know, justification, rationalization, minimization, all of those different lesser forms or finer grain forms, if you will, of that defect. Well, for me, we took out this thesaurus, <laughs> looked up impatience, and it was like short-tempered, restless, irritable, poor listener, you know, all of those sorts of things, right? And started looking at the opposite of those characteristics. So I understand that impatience is a problem, but I didn't really think about it in the context of short-tempered, cutting people off. And that's one thing I was notorious for with my with um, the former lovely Mrs. Nickel. This is in. You know, we'd be in a conversation, she'd bring up a topic, and then I would just sort of like nip it in the bud or 
start preparing my defense and mm-hmm. get ready to to rebut what you're trying to say. And then I don't blame her. I'd get tired of trying to talk with that guy too, you know? Did you ever have a chance to sit down and actually do a face-to-face amends with either your daughters or your wife? Or mm-hmm. has it been a living amends? Talk about that. Yeah, we actually did. And I would recommend to anyone out there listening, don't wait a couple of years to do that. You know, when you enter into a program, your spouse, they're, they're figuring out what this program is about and they hear the word amends and they're expecting theirs, you know? <laughs> <laughs> and um, I do think, I do think in all fairness that I probably, I know that I should have tackled it earlier and I know that I hurt her by not doing it as early as I could have, mm. you know? And so I would, I would encourage you that when you think you're ready, you may not do it perfectly and don't do it too soon. Talk to your sponsor about it. But when you think you're ready, do the very best job that you can. Another thing I want to talk to you about is when you come to meetings and when you, you are tasked with uh, cheering uh, the meeting for Alcoholics Anonymous, uh, you always do a great job. Uh, and you're actually, I'm so like, I, you know, I, I am so unprepared. It's not even funny, right? And I should take it more serious. But you, you spend some time, you look at history, and there's some way that you're able to, to weave in a topic with AA history at the same time. And I heard you do that once, I think, with, with Roland, if I'm, if I'm not mistaken, mm-hmm. Roland H. Can sure. you talk to me a little bit about what you're, you know, uh, how, how you prepared that and, and what the topic was, if you remember? Absolutely, John. Um, and if possible, I would like to wrap up the, uh, the thing about the character defects and yeah, how oh, yeah. it impacted things because uh, it was really life-changing. And I can go there after... No, 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 no. Go to the right now. Okay. Well, super quick. So as we got into these defects of character and making a, uh, a consideration of these impatience as a character defect and living into the opposite, I thought, how can we possibly apply this in real life? And it's like, the opposite would be to be actively listening, to be loving regardless of what's being said, to be slow to anger, to be fully present, and to be patient. God's sakes, if your defect is impatience, try being patient. And so as we're sitting there in counseling sessions, and she's accustomed to me cutting off things when they get uncomfortable, instead, I'm saying, can you tell me a little bit more? You know, and the counselor's saying, why don't you tell him how this event affected you, and how did you feel about this and that? And and so, you know, I, I just remember one time to cut it off, at, at a certain point, she said, you know, this was a really tough day-to-day, a tough session. We would hang out usually for about an hour afterwards and just kind of debrief. And, you know, we were talking that night and she goes, I fired every gun in the bullet at you today and you didn't react. She said, I know you were holding back some words for me. You had to be. And, you know, the old me would have been defensive, would have been coming at her and saying, but, 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 you know, I meant the best and I did this and I did that. What about what I do for the kids? And I try to provide and all that. And I just said, you know, I remember looking up at the sky and, and realizing, no, I told her the words never came. I I don't have anything to argue about. I just wanted to hear you, you know, and I understand where you're coming from. And it was like this thing that when it says that God did for me what I couldn't do for myself, and there's another verse that that talks about be renewed by the restoring of your mind. You're a different creature now. And, and um God never gave me that 
that defensiveness and those words because I had already done step six and seven to come to realize I, I can act in the opposite of those defects. And it says in here, we take aim toward perfection, which is to say God. And it says that in step six in the 12 and 12, we aim at perfection, which is the opposite of our defects. So I learned to act in the opposite of that typical defect only through prayer and asking God to, to remove that. And then the work with uh, the work with him to come up with these opposites of the defects that well last thing I'll say is that materially impacted everything that followed when we did finally get to the point that we needed to dissolve the marriage wow. there was no fighting or bickering there was no no uh, there, there was just it wasn't a battle you know and our our girls got to see two adults that dealt with each other civilly that we helped each other if we needed to go get furniture for the new place, you know, I'm there to help her. We went and met with her mom together, you know, and, um, and with my parents, none of them were afraid and the girls weren't afraid. And, you know, it's just, it's a much more beautiful way of life to do it. And that's 100% because of step work. Oh, that's beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. No, I'm glad you wrapped that up. That's, uh, Wow, you know, and that's what I keep thinking. Of, I kept thinking of the word psychic change when you were going, when you were describing that. Yeah, it says um, this is a good transition to Roland Hazard and Carl Jung. You know, <laughs> okay. it's like we are in need of a profound psychic change, and it's and I think Carl Jung told Roland Hazard um, the old ideas, attitudes, and emotions which once govern the lives of these men are now replaced an entirely new set of ideas, attitudes, and emotions comes to dominate them. That's what the psychic change is all about, man. I, I promise you, my brain did not work that way. It just didn't. And when you realize that your mind has been healed by a, a power greater than you, unless you're absolutely delusional, there is no way on earth to explain it other than it came from God. So talk to me a little bit about the, the, that whole incident with Roland and Carl and how sure. they got together and what kind of message was brought back. <laughs> go, go through that a little. Yeah, man. I, I just love um, one thing about Mr. H is, you know, he's, he's a huge fan of AA literature and kind of got me into it. And I, I started doing these research on some of these giants of early AA like uh, Ebby Thatcher and Roland Hazard and, and others. Um, there are so many out there. Um, and all these things had to come together to create the right environment where Bill Wilson's life was changed and he could go on and carry the message to Dr. Bob and, and Founders Days established, right? But the thing with Roland Hazard that interest me, interested me is, you know, his family was very well to do New England family, I believe, out of the Northeast anyway, you know, not here in Texas, but where the old money is, you know, and, and he had a long line history of, I believe his mother's side of the family, all the men went to Yale and on his father's side of the family, all the men went to Brown. And I believe he went to Yale. Don't quote me on that, but I think that's what happened. And you can see I'm not working with notes, right? Chance. So, <laughs> um, you know, he's Ivy League educated. His family has a ton of money. And yet he has this alcohol problem that he can't solve. And so what do they do? They try to find the best in the world and they go and approach Sigmund Freud, as I understand it, try to get their son in to see 
uh, Dr. Freud. So I'm trying to equate that to nowadays. It would probably be like trying to get in to see Dr. Phil. Yeah, or Oprah. Private, you know, Oprah, no. maybe uh, a Deepak Chopra, whoever. Yeah. In for a private, uh, you know, for that private lesson. Wh- whoever's on the forefront of success. Mm-hmm. But Sigmund Freud, right? The, the, he couldn't go to see Sigmund Freud, I think, because... I know he was too busy or something, so they went through young. I, I, yep, I very well could be wrong. As about the it. story goes, that's what yeah. I found in my research. Yeah. All right. So, we, but he, but young was overseas, and both he, were in, I believe, Vienna. They were okay. in Austria, and right. young and and Freud were contemporaries, and I think they had a lot of respect for one another. And I believe that Freud referred him to young, if I'm not mistaken. Okay. So he goes to see Carl Jung, and it's not like you just hop on a plane to do that. Yeah, I believe at the time it. I believe it probably he went ocean liner, but I right. couldn't swear to it. I understand. Um, but I know that he was he was there in his care for several months. Um, and, you know, it said Carl, Carl Jung was telling him that he was trying to understand some of the hidden traps and releases in his mind and to help affect this psychic change, you know, that he did not. And he said, there's a section in the big book where he tells Roland Hazard that he's never seen a case like his recover. Right. I'm trying to find the, the exact page, but basically that's what he tells me. Yeah, him. he just says, he, he, you're, mm-hmm. you're, you're really bad off. I rarely, I, I don't see mm-hmm. people like you recover. And as a, fa- as a matter of fact, I think what happened is he went there, he spent a few months with, with Young, he gets sober, and then by the time he gets to Paris on the train, he's hammered. Right. You know, and so he went right back and it said that self-knowledge, he was trying to solve it on the basis of self-knowledge and he goes to Paris and he's drunk and I guess he winds up with his folks. They managed to get him back into Dr. Young's care and it said that he felt like the gates of hell had closed in on him with a clang after Carl Young tells him, I've never seen a case like yours recover. You know, that's a sentence that I related to so strongly um, when I came in, I, I had felt like I had been behind the gates of hell for a long time. So Young tells him he's never seen a case like yours recovered, but then he said, came, kind of gave him a little bit of hope in saying what? He said to him, is there no exception? Hazard asked him that. Is there no exception to that? And Carl Young said, uh, yes, there are every now and then. It's on page 27 of the big book in There is a Solution. It says, the doctor said, you have the mind of a chronic alcoholic. I've never seen one single case recover where that state of mind existed to the extent that it does in you. And it says, our friend felt as though the gates of hell had closed in on him with a clang. Yes, replied, or then he asks him, is there no exception? Yes, replied the doctor, there is. Exceptions to cases such as yours have been occurring since early times. Here and there, once in a while, alcoholics have had what are called vital spiritual experiences. To me, these occurrences are phenomena. They appear in the nature of huge emotional displacements and rearrangements, ideas, emotions, and attitudes that once were the guiding forces of the lives of these men are suddenly cast aside and a completely new set of concepts and motives begins to dominate them. Man, I just love that story. And eventually he winds up, Hazard winds up, as I understand it, carrying this message to Ebby Thatcher and Ebby carries it to Bill. And so, you know, Carl Jung and modern psychology play a pretty profound role. It's like in Alcoholics Anonymous, there are clergy, there's 
elements of the law in the in the form of judges, for example, and probably some law enforcement. There's clergy involved. There's the medical community, as you know, Dr. Silkworth and Carl Jung. And I just read something the other day from Harry Tebolt, who wrote in the American Journal of Modern Psychology and, you know, about the, the nature of the alcoholic and this character construct that they have that's so severely dysfunctional. Right. You know? It's pretty fascinating stuff to me. So, Curry, if we were to kind of wrap this up, if you were to tie a bow on this thing, you have a lot of people out there listening to you that are considering Alcoholics Anonymous or they've been in it and it didn't work for them. Um, And there's a lot of other folks who are just kind of looking for a little kind of a, a flimsy read to hold on to, if you will. What do you want to say about your experience, strength and hope within the program up to this point? Uh, what do you want to leave people with? What comes to mind? What I can say is that those events that you cannot imagine walking through in your life, the things that keep you up at night and that you don't think would be possible to tackle without a drink are absolutely achievable. And that person inside of you that you've always aspired to be, that you feel God is calling you to be, that person is waiting on you to take that first step. I don't think the person that I was in 2012 and 2013, that guy would not recognize this guy. And I can't recognize that guy. It's like two completely different people, you know, in every aspect, physically, mentally, and especially, and most importantly, spiritually. So there's tremendous hope in this program. And all it takes is showing up. Similar to the uh, message that, Chance brought up as a topic earlier today Mm -hmm. in our uh, meeting, you know, what were you like and, you know, what is it like today and how have you changed? So, well, I know I just kind of grabbed you at the last second here while you were eating lunch, uh, brought you on over here and recorded you. And I really appreciate you doing, we gave you a little coffee, right? Yeah. Because you were going to go take a nap, I think. (laughs) And, yeah, I but I it. but I appreciate you coming over here. I'm going to wrap it up with page 164 from the book. It says, abandon yourself to God as you understand God. Admit your faults to him and to your fellows. Clear away the wreckage of your past. Give freely of what you find and join us. We shall be with you in the fellowship of the Spirit, and you will surely meet some of us, like me and Curry and Chance, As you trudge the road of happy destiny, may God bless you and keep you until then. Once again, Mr. Curry, thank you for coming by and recording your story. I appreciate it. Thank you so much, Juan M. Thank you again, Mr. Curry. He had no idea I was going to ambush him at that restaurant uh, and bring him over to record today, but uh, I'm so glad that he made the the trip over. And uh, once again, my friend Curry, thank you so much. Appreciate ya. Now, on to, oh, by the way, if you enjoyed that, and who would not? have enjoyed that. Please pause your device, click that little share button and send it on over to a friend or family member. It, that episode or the podcast as a whole may be just what they need today. Share, 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 share with your amigos and amigas. Do I have that right? 
Ah, I can never get that straight. I I think amigos would cover both girls and boys or men and women, but I, I don't know. Nonetheless, now <laughs> on to a. In fact, Curry would have been able to help me with this if I'd been recording this part at the same time with he was here because he is fluent in Spanish because he grew up in the El Paso area. Uh, nonetheless. All right. Now on to a little bit of a listener feedback. And the first bit of feedback here comes from Hannah B. So Hannah is writing in, uh, I think, I think she called, uh, yeah, she called this episode number 286 was the, the, the subject line of this, uh, uh, email. So Hannah is listening in. Well, I'll just read it. She says, hi, John, Hannah B. here over in Suquamish, Washington. And once again, I know she's written in before. I doubt I'm saying that right, but hopefully I'm in the area. Anyway, she uh, is writing in from Suquamish, Washington. She says, I'm listening to episode number 286 as I type this message. She is a multitasker. And she says, by the way, the fear of spiders. (laughs) She says, by the way, the fear of spiders is arachnophobia, not agoraphobia. (laughs) I think I had a little mishap in getting those words straight on uh, the previous, uh, on episode number 286. (laughs) Thanks for filling me in there, uh, Hannah B. She says, anyways, in big capital letters, I would very much like to communicate with Brad or Dennis to see if they can help me get connected to be able to communicate with women who are incarcerated. So, if you're out there and you're listening to this and you are a woman who is incarcerated, you can write me, John, J-O-H-N, at SoberSpeak.com, and I will get you over to Hannah. But she says, I myself have only ever spent two nights in jail as a result of my alcoholism. In parentheses, definitely got lucky there. And I heard you talking about those guys. She's talking about Brad and Dennis. uh, uh, And they are... Uh, at the beginning of this episode, and I just felt really moved to reach out and see if they can help me get the ball rolling. I would love to get involved. And when she's talking about getting involved, you probably know this, but she's talking about communicating with women who are incarcerated. And she says, thank you so much for all you do. This podcast has become a daily thing for me. I've mentioned this in a previous email. I'm a full-time single mom, employee, and college student. My goodness, you got a lot going on there, Miss Hannah. Uh, She says, making meetings can be challenging. I chair a meeting every Wednesday to make sure I never go a week without one, but your podcast is simply incredible. The humility and brutal honesty of your speakers and yourself just blows my mind. You're too kind, Miss Hannah. Uh, That's very nice. And then she says, I will have 
four months coming up here this month, and you have played a critical role in getting me there. I get so, in big capital letters, excited when I get onto Spotify and I see there is a new episode. Keep on keeping on and know what you do is making a difference in so many lives, including mine, big peace sign, big heart sign, Hannah B. Well, God bless you, Hannah. I appreciate it. And as you know, um, I got you in touch with Brad and Dennis. Um, I'll read this on the air. I never really know exactly what's going to come of these things, but uh, I will obviously keep you informed uh, if we get anybody that is writing in. Thank you so much, Hannah. Say hello to your cute little daughter for me. (laughs) Dennis writes in and he says, Hi, John. I just listened to the newest Sober Speak episode. Great episode as always, but I heard you read my email. Thank you. I was listening while cooking, so it took me a second to register that you were reading what you were reading. But as soon as I clicked, I was like, hey, that's me. Ha ha. (laughs) Also, thank you for calling me a super guy. I think you're a super guy as well, John D as in Dennis. Well, D. Thank you so much for all the work that you do with with reaching out to people for the uh, for the podcast. Uh, uh, this is the Dennis that uh, in the previous uh, email from Hannah that she is uh, uh, referring to, and uh, I really appreciate you, Dennis, Dennis, Brad, uh, anybody who's doing some work with the with the podcast. I just really appreciate you guys. Thank you so much. Tony writes in and Tony says, hi, John, I'm still listening. I just got around to hearing your story. What you went through with your mom, man, you are a king among men, my friend. I don't know about that, Tony, but you're very kind. He says, truly, the receipt of God's grace is a wonderful, wonderful thing. Now, I do agree with you on that. As you say, John, the right way, I we try, but we are only human. I love you, John. This past year has given me so much hope and strength. You know how that feels. Take care for now, Tony. Well, Tony, love back out to you, my friend. And uh, I appreciate you writing in. And it's always good to hear from you. Always good. John writes in, not me, John, another John. Uh, In fact, this is the John with uh, no H, but he says, hey, John, with an H, that's me saying the H part. He didn't actually say that. He says, well, I made it to three months clean and sober for the first time ever. I've gotten to three months sober in the past using the marijuana maintenance program, but not actually working the program. The results generally spoke for themselves and was not maintainable. I remember at one or two months, I had some fears about getting to this point, and now I am in uncharted territory, although I guess in reality, this whole period has been uncharted and has been completely different than anything from previous attempts at recovery. At recovery. He says, I know you mentioned that your experience was similar to mine and that you were in and out for a few years before finally grabbing hold of your recovery. I'm wondering if you could share some of your experience you may have dealt with when hitting any previous milestones 
that you just couldn't seem to get past in the earlier attempts in your recovery? Do you experience any fear thinking, hey, I've been here before, I've never gotten past this point, etc.? I'll respond to that in a second. I just want to finish it out though. He says, I finished the last of your episodes the day after I hit three months and it was bittersweet. The days spent working and listening to Sober Speak have been critical to this period of early recovery. Thank you from the bottom of my heart for what you do. As I move forward into my recovery and into the unknown, I will look forward to each new episode that comes out. Best wishes, John D., prayer hands, and then like, I guess that's a rock and roll kind of sign. I don't know, like a, you know, like I call them a hook them horn sign when I'm down here in Texas, but... John D., congratulations on your sobriety, and I want to go back and respond to what you asked me. So you're right. I was in and out of Alcoholics Anonymous for three years. This last time I came in, I did not even think I was going to get sober. In other words, uh, I didn't look at the date. Uh, I didn't say when I would go to meetings, this is my date. I would just say sober today, whatever the case. And I just kept going back to meetings. And then there was one point that I thought, I don't know. I better go back. I look <laughs> in order to figure out my sobriety date. I had to go back and look at my credit card receipts from the bars that I had been out at or the bars I had been in previously. So, with that said, I I didn't really have a time. You said, did you experience any fear thinking like, hey, I've been here before? I don't remember that. And so here's what happened with me. I got this sponsor is Bob L. I still have him today. He took me aside and he said, hey, have you worked the steps? I had not worked the steps. He took me aside. I started working the steps and I got busy in it and I got busy going to treatment centers. And all of a sudden I noticed after a couple of months, I wasn't trying to avoid drinking or anything like that, but I noticed that I was in a position of neutrality where drinking was concerned. And from that point, I haven't had to have a drink since. So I don't remember thinking, uh, hey, I've been here before. I've never gotten past this point, but that was my experience. Everybody's a little bit different. Uh, I do remember when I would get to particular milestones that, yeah, I have been here before, but I felt much more comfortable about being in that place. I hope that helps you uh, with me sharing my experience, strength, and hope. But once again, John D., I appreciate you writing in. Congratulations on your three months uh, minus the marijuana maintenance program. (laughs) I know a lot of people have been on that myself. All right, everybody. That right there is another episode of... In fact, this is what, 290, I think, right? This is 290 in the can. So we uh, have one more in the books. Uh, I, I... think I'll be back next week. Uh, I hope I'll be back next week. As you know, I always take this one step at a time. Until then, keep coming back. It works if you work it. And may God bless you and keep you until then. Bye-bye now.